Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a non-profit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Good evening, everyone. You know, just a few weeks ago, we were celebrating and here hosting in Houston, uh, Dallas the, the Final Four, and I, I feel the excitement now that everybody is ready to see what's going to happen in the next big contest, the midterms. And, uh, of course, if you watch CNN, you wouldn't know that there was anything going on except a, a search for a, a missing plane that I'm convinced that they're going to find in, at, at, in White Rock Lake. But um, I, I am uh, particularly pleased about this program tonight because uh, 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 Mark Kennedy uh, became a, a, and his wife Debbie became very good friends uh, a few years ago when, when we had the, the pleasure of going to Turkey under the auspices of uh, the Turkish Cultural Foundation. We got to be the guinea pigs, if you remember, because what the uh, foundation then started doing um, was inviting teachers uh, from all over the United States, and a number of them have come from Dallas-Fort Worth, and these teachers go to Turkey for about two to three weeks and then come back and incorporate what they've learned and experienced back into the classrooms here. And uh, I think we have actually won that uh, grant at least four times uh, since we, we went. So we didn't make too bad of an impression, I guess. But when... Uh, Mark called me now, probably about six. Come on up front, Scheib. We're going to put you on the spot for coming in late. There we go. Welcome. <laughs> Scheib, by the way, got up very early and rode bikes with me at six, so he, he gets a pass. Um, but when, when, when Mark called me a few months ago about this, we were very, very pleased to have the opportunity to present this program. The way this is designed, I'm going to hit some uh, PowerPoint in a minute to do the introduction that, that Mark has designed. So I'll, I'll formally introduce you in a second. But let me just thank you, Mark, for uh, providing this partnership with George Washington University. Um, also want to thank, and I don't know if Jeff Engel is in the room or not, but uh, for helping us, and Jeff, of course, Dr. Engel is the uh, director of SMU's uh, relatively new Center for Presidential History, and I encourage everyone to look at what they're doing because uh, they're bringing in just some fantastic, fantastic speakers. And I see as well that we have students from Allen High School as well as Hockaday School. Uh, Terrell and I just came from the memorial service for Margaret Crow, and uh, the Hockaday students just did a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, rendition of, of, of several songs mm. in, in honor of somebody who's, by the way, been very supportive of our organization over her nearly 95 years. want to remind everybody, too, that on April 24th, we're going to have a program featuring Russell Gold, and uh, I encourage everyone to look at the review of his book, The Boom, How Fracking Ignited the American Energy Revolution and Changed the World. That review was recently in the Wall Street Journal, very favorable review, and I expect that program will probably sell out. So if you're interested in coming <clears throat> next Thursday, April 24th, please go to dfwworld.org and sign up as quickly as possible. Then on April 29th, Julia Swig, uh, she's the Director of Latin American Studies, and we're going to be focusing at, at, at the Council on Foreign Relations, we'll be focusing on Brazil and Cuba. And then, I don't know how many people remember the article that was in the New Yorker 
um, several months ago uh, about how the United States and Iran really had a back channel on the negotiations. And the person that really was orchestrating that was a woman named Suzanne DiMaggio. And she's now working um, uh, with the New American Foundation. She was with the Asia Society for a period of time. We contacted her right after we saw that article and she accepted our invitation. So she'll be here on Wednesday, April 30th to really talk about sort of what she can tell us about the negotiations that brought the two countries uh, to, to, the, to the negotiating table. And Jocelyn is, is back there and she'd be very upset since this is really her, her program and she and Rachel de decided this was something we would do and that you all would enjoy it. We're bringing in Maz Jobrani. How many people know Maz Jobrani? Boy, look at that show of hands. Now, not enough of you all watch late night television. And now I've watched him. Master Brani is hilarious. And he will skewer everybody. He is an uh, Iranian-American comedian. And that is going to be at the Dallas City Performance Hall on May 22nd. It's, we, we actually are uh, delighted how many people have already signed up for it. Uh, f folks who go to Comedy, Cent Comedy Central and all of that. So, you know, sort of break out of the mold. Come, come to that. And now, let me see if I can do this the way Mark wants me to do it. So, first going to introduce Mark Penn, but one of the things that I, I saw about Mark that may not be up there is he's been called the master of the message by Time and a guru of small things by the New York Times. Uh, one of the things that I'm eager to hear you talk about a bit tonight, Mark, is just some of the work that you've done in uh, other countries and, and how polling is, is, is addressed there. I've helped elect more than 25 leaders in the United States, and the Washington Post said, no pollster has ever become so thoroughly integrated into the policy-making operation of a presidential administration as had Penn. And then here's the name that I'm going to have to pronounce correctly. Here we go. Jan von Lohausen. Do okay? <laughs> I never took German. Anyway, our friend over there on the far left, you're right. <laughs> Um, he's president of Voter Consumer Research, a Houston-based polling firm he founded in 1991. Um, has uh, worked as a polling director for the National Republican Senatorial Committee and has been very close and has worked with, as his pollster, the pollster for Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. And is it up there? It says principal pollster. It doesn't say principal pollster. Principal pollster for George W. Bush's 2000 and 2004 presidential campaign. And now, here's what I'm allowed to tell you about Mark Kennedy. There we go. Other than that, he's, he's a great guy. One thing, though, he'll go into major department stores with cameras in different countries, and then you get chased out by the security people. But I'll let him tell you more about that. Thank you so much. And here, Mark, you get this. Thank you. And uh, thank you, Jim. We very much appreciate the Dallas-Fort Worth World Affairs Council for hosting us. We knew that we would find a wonderful audience here that would uh, have great questions, so we're going to try to get through this in time to have some questions at the end. I very much appreciate both Mark and Jan being with us here today to give you some insights. Uh, we at the Graduate School of Political Management uh, are a school of politics, uh, not policy. 285 policy schools, figuring out what to do. We focus on how to do, and clearly a key part of that is uh, polling. And uh, Mark uh, Penn was gracious enough to help us uh, found the Society of Presidential Pollster, and we're appreciative for both of our panelists being with us here today. Our approach is that I'm going to go through a variety of questions to get us all started, but then at the end we're going to have some opportunity for you to ask questions. 
you might have just a surface view as to what polling is, but my hope is that by the end of our conversation here tonight, you'll have a much deeper insight into what's all behind it. As always, as Jim was alluding to, I reinforce all my presentations exclusively with my own photos. We want to protect everybody else's intellectual property rights, so I only use my own, taken from around the world, so uh, you'll always see me with the camera in my hand taking pictures of everything. Uh, and uh, we'll, I'm sure, get into issues later on. Uh, part of the challenge why you need to have a good understanding of public opinion is that America is nearly evenly divided on just about every issue. Uh, you know, if you go to Boston, uh, they think a gun ban is exactly what we need. If you go to Las Vegas, they have a completely different view of the world between those two. And neither can understand why everybody in the world doesn't agree with their point of view, which is part of the problem we have with the perception of the political process. Here today, we're talking about public opinion and the presidency. And the Society of Presidential Pollsters, which we're pleased to host at the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington University, is just for those pollsters that have advised the president in the White House. Not those that have advised during a campaign, it's those that have advised in the White House, and both of our panelists here have met that standard. We're gonna, I'm gonna bring out four questions to get us going and leave all the other questions to you. The first, starting out with, what role does public opinion play in a presidency? The second being, how do you reach voters today? It's getting more hard. And how do you predict turnout? Also getting more hard. And then a challenge that you see wrestling with in today's uh, day and age politically is how do you sustain the energy through implementation of whatever you're trying to accomplish? Uh, clearly an issue with Obamacare as we are standing here today. And then finally, there's always the tug of war between being the world leader and being the party leader. And oftentimes public opinion is pulling you in completely different directions. How do we deal with that? So those are the opening questions to be thinking about what other questions that you might want to be having. You know, there's a lot of folks, and I even got some of the questions in sort of the chat around beforehand. Uh, you know, are you just all poll driven? Well, let's remember we do live, as one person reminded me, in a republic. Uh, but in any event, whether republic or democracy, you're supposed to be responsive to the will of the people. And therefore, you can't completely dismiss the fact that understanding that will is very important. And not just the five last people you talk to, but more broadly. That's the role that polling can play. On the other hand, sometimes public opinion isn't uh, always the best and can be misguided. My favorite example of this was uh, Winston Churchill during his wilderness years spent a decade trying to tell the British people that they need to worry about this rising German threat. At the time, 90% of the British people supported disarmament. 90% of the British people were wrong. And because politicians paid attention to public opinion in that case, millions more people died than needed to. So there is this tension. And so I want to begin with our, our panelists. When you're sitting there in the Oval Office uh, consulting with the president, what do you perceive as the, this struggle and the role of public opinion and the role of the pollster in the White House? We'll maybe start with Jan to kick this off. There's a, there's a legitimate function for public opinion, as you said. And we need to, politicians need to be responsive to the public, and they aren't always. Um, if politicians were responsive to the public right now, they'd be talking about reforming the economy and economic growth. And that's definitely not what we're doing. The, the role that, that we played in the White House was a, a bit limited because 
just to remind you, when Governor Bush ran for president, he ran in 98 and 99, deciding to run. And at the time, um, there was a picture of Dick Morris on the front of, I think it was Time Magazine or Newsweek, sitting on the shoulder of Bill Clinton. And that led him to joke to everybody he met that he was running for the second most important job in Washington, that, that of president, that the most important job was to be the pollster for the president. And, and that kind of reduced my role <laughs> for the next eight years. I think that the, in addition to agenda setting, the, the principal thing we did was, um, was just um, one, tracking. How, how is it going? How is it playing? And, and two, um, marketing. Um, to, to give you an example, the, the president really wanted to uh, do something about Social Security. And what he was going to do about Social Security was entirely outside of my purview. Coming up with the marketing program for him to sell Social Security reform um, to the voters um, was where we got involved. So how do you define the problem? Uh, what is the range of fixes that sells? And what is the range of messaging around the, the need to fix Social Security that sells? Now, I give you that as an example because it was just a disastrous failure. <coughs> we didn't even get a vote out of Congress um, on either the House or the Senate, both of which we controlled at the time, on, on Social Security reform. Um, and, and the problem was that while we were talking to voters, uh, the members were, well, how do I say this politely? Um, the, the members didn't have the fortitude to take risk of taking on this uh, this mission, and we ran in a highly polar, very polarized, even less polarized than today. But even then, while well, you were there, a, a highly polarized environment, um, which uh, the, the the other side of the aisle saw as an opportunity to start um, running the uh, the 06 election, um, which led to instant withdrawal of all um, political courage on the side of many, many of your colleagues, yourself excluded, of course. Um, so it, the, the, the bottom line to the answer is it, it is it is very, very hard to do, and it's become a lot harder to do in the last 15 years to rally the public behind something that needs doing that isn't particularly popular um, and in, a, in an environment where everything you say is seen as an opportunity to um, to turn it into an election issue. Um, so that was Very good. Mark. Uh, <coughs> uh, thanks, Mark. And, you know, Mark says he's a, he runs a school of politics, but not policy. But President Clinton always used to say, he says, good policy is good politics, right? And it was is always very important to understand that good policy today is a lot of the products, whether it's the campaign or the White House or the presidency, trying to do the right thing in a complex environment, uh, really does come down to good policy, making good politics. And and I'd say that there, you know, when it comes to polls in the presidency, uh, there's the mythology: uh, polls are bad, polls are a uh, uh, a stump line. I don't, I don't. I don't govern by polls. I remember actually working for someone who was considering running for president uh, right here in this city, who will remain nameless, uh, who went 
I, I did a poll, and he, the fellow went from the poll presentation to a news program where the first question was, have you done any polls? And he said, no, absolutely, I would never do a poll. And he had come run from the poll presentation. <laughs> so it tells you something about uh, how people regard polls. And part of the reason, actually, that helped set up the, the society is then there's the reality of polls you know, in the White House and in, and in the modern presidency. And <coughs> I always use a model that a, a, a president wants to get things done. Getting things done in the country with a system of checks and balances is not the easiest thing in the world. It's not supposed to be, right? And in fact, there are a number of desks. I always look at it. <coughs> the president really has to, has to consult in order to get anything done. You know, he's going to have to clear the press desk, right? Well, how's the press going to react to this? What are they going to say about it? How are they going to write it? What are they going to see the policy as? It's going to have to clear the congressional desk. It's going to have to go through Congress. What are people in Congress going to say? What are the various factions? Where, where, where is that going to play with the majority uh, and, the, and the minority? Right? It's, it's got to clear the policy desk, which is probably where maybe it started out. The policymakers have to say, this policy, you know, you take something like I, a 50 cent gasoline tax, which is one of the proposals Clinton made. Well, <laughs> you know, the press kind of liked it. Uh, then it got to Congress and all those states where people drive, they said, what, are you kidding? And then the policy people, they, they, they loved it, right? And, and then it's got to get through the special interest desk. Well, because on any policy, you're going to affect certain groups more than others. Maybe labor's going to weigh in, maybe environmental groups are going to weigh in. And then finally, you've got the desk of public opinion. And the desk of public opinion is an important one, but it's, it's neither to be exaggerated nor undercounted because it's one of the five important desks that if you're going to get something big done. And almost every major reform or change that we have made in the country maybe started out being something people were skeptical of, but when they were passed, or at the end of the day, if you take something like Medicare or, or the Civil Rights Bill, they were supported by a majority of the people. Because we, we do live in a republic, a democracy, and getting majority support for big proposals and big changes is very important to their implementation, their passage, and the continued political support. And, and, and the congressmen, particularly in swing districts, know that a lot of unpopular legislation could result in a real voter backlash. One of the reasons the framers put in that Congress has an election every two years. And when I asked voters recently, did you want to make that four? They said, no, 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 two years is just fine. So, so I think that's an overview of the role. It, it, it plays a role, the, the public opinion desk, what the polls say, they don't, they don't determine things, but they're one of five, I think, very important process, processes and touch points that any president's going to have to go through if he wants to, to get something done. Now, you both mentioned uh, Congress, that Social Security ran under the buzzsaw of Congress and that you need to get it through in key swing districts. And you might perceive the presidential pollsters as doing just the nation as a whole, but how do you really focus it down into the congressional votes that you're going to need to get and how that plays in Congress. How much of your polling really needs to dive into that? We'll try to keep this to 10 minutes. Well, again, you know, <coughs> we had a, a, particularly during the Clinton years, uh, when I was pollster for President Clinton uh, for six years, we went, through the, uh, we went through the first government shutdown. And so the, the biggest, perhaps, single issue 
that we, that we polled on, that we understood, was getting an agreement to the balanced budget. And so how that was going to go through, what was going to happen with the shutdown. Remember, two sides in politics could have vast disagreements, are going to push their disagreements to the limit, in this case the shutdown of the government pushed it to the limit. Then everybody, I think, realizes the limits of their position. And then if the system is kind of working, then they all sit down and they agree on their differences and move forward. You know, a lot of people think the system's gotten stuck, but the system is not, is not one of just uh, harmony and, and friendship and backstabbing. It's an actual real system of resolving difficult problems in which people disagree. And, and that's where polling, I think, played a big, pretty big role in understanding the limits of the, of, the, of the balanced budget. So President Clinton was for a balanced budget. The Republicans were for a balanced budget. So then they both agreed on where they wanted to go. The disagreement was on how they were going to get there. And they characterized uh, really us as, as not really wanting to cut spending, <coughs> not really you know, being realistic in, in terms of making the curves of programs they wanted. And we characterized them as trying to, trying to get rid of Medicare, Social Security, education, and the environment. And I think that was an example of both sides went all out. Both sides pushed their push their position, and the end point was, we believe, a balanced budget according to American values. That was what we had, that, that was what we had wanted to accomplish, that was what we wanted to agree to, and, and that's what I think, I think actually got agreed to. And, and I think the president understanding how the public was going to react in advance, because I remember when the, when the government was shut down, the Republicans thought they had a had a good way of maybe dramatizing the issue that who needs government anyway? Uh, things were getting a little tight, you know, stuff was shutting down, workers were being, were going home, and the president turns to me, you sure this is going to be okay? And I said, absolutely. Because uh, we were confident that, in fact, the shutdown of the government was going to backfire. And, and I think Republicans learned an important lesson out of that and didn't shut the government down for a long time until they, I think, relearned the same lesson when they did it the second time. Yeah. Well, I, I think actually you, you make a good point, and it leads to the, the point about how much things have changed. In this last shutdown, as much as 40% of the Republicans thought it was just fine, uh, completely different from the, uh, the, the, the first one. Um, and, and that is just a testament to how much further things have polarized and how much the far right and far left have radicalized. Um, if you have um, nearly half of Republicans going, well, in order, to, in order to stop Obamacare, it was perfectly fine to shut down the government. And if you voted to end the shutdown, you were for Obamacare. That's, that's now playing out in the Republican primaries um, in a number of Senate races. And that's a long, long way from where we were back then when most people, including nearly every Republican, said, you're shutting down, you're not doing your job, right? you know, s s stop, stop being a crybaby um, and get back to work, which was very much the message to uh, Newt Gingrich um, and, and the, uh, the, the caucus. Um, the second point is that what, what we're talking about here is, is, is mass public opinion. And we're talking about all voters. There are other levels of public opinion and the way to express these has, has really, really changed in the last 15 years. 
and, and I'll give you an, an anecdote. Um, if, if a member of the Senate goes to a meeting to discuss a compromise on something, it almost doesn't matter what, just pick a topic, um, Keystone Pipeline. Um, somebody, an assistant, a staffer will sit there with his little PDA device and start sending emails to people who either approve of that or hate it. Mostly they send it to people who hate it. They get to Twitter and email and um, other forms of communication. And by the time this senator who might simply want to deal with the issue and move on and be willing to cut a compromise, by the time he's walked back from his meeting to his office, the phone in his office is ringing and email is going. Now that is public opinion, uh, but it's not mass public opinion. Um, and it, the, the, the timelines involved have so much accelerated um, in the last five or six years um, that policy making under these circumstances where intense pressure uh, comes at you within moments um, makes it very, very difficult uh, much more difficult than it has been to to come to an agreement. And that intense pressure, it's not just in the Senate and the House, it's, it's, it comes into the White House, it comes into the administration. So um, the life has really changed quite a bit in the last 15 years, and it's generally, as I'm sounding old fashioned, uh, generally uh, made things more difficult and not been a good thing. Compromise is much more difficult now uh, than it was 15 years ago. And I think a part of that is, you know, we used to have about 150 congressional districts out of 435 that were actually in play. Now you're down to less than 40. So when you say 40% of the Republicans actually go home and say it was a good thing we shut down the government, they're clearly in the very, very safe Republican districts uh, that, are, that are playing. When I grew up in northern Minnesota, we only got one TV station, NBC. So when I went to college and people talked about leave it to Beaver and things like that, I had no idea what they were talking about. Uh, now today, you know, you've got thousands of different choices and everybody's listening to their own choice, making the population much more fragmented, much harder to address. Uh, so these are big challenges. Uh, but speaking of the fragmented audiences, uh, back in the good old days, you know, you used to have a choice of your phone as to whether you wanted banana yellow, or if you really preferred, you could have, you know, banana yellow. Uh, uh, now <coughs> it's uh, gotten to be where most people don't have a phone uh, at home, uh, particularly the young. They're relying completely on cell phones. That makes it harder to reach. The idea that you were doing a poll by calling somebody at home, and uh, where do they like to get uh, communicated? How do they like to get communicated with? It might be text, which it's hard to do a poll by text. And once you call, you know, the real question is whether they will answer the phone. And when they do answer the phone, you're saying, you know, you know how long are they really going to have for an attention span? And then to compound that, you have the, how do I predict turnout? Because big data being applied to politics has really changed the nature where you can exaggerate certain segments turnout depending on how you're applying it. So it's hard to figure out how you're going to be able to do that, as well as how good a job your opponent's going to be able to do that, all of which says it's much harder to do an accurate poll today that really will predict an electoral outcome than it was before. So with, with that, I'll maybe have Jan, you tell, how do you get past all this hard to reach people, hard to predict 
turn out hard to really come out with inaccurate poll? Um, well, I could go on here for hours. Um, specifically on the cell phones, we now call people on their cell phone. There's a legal restriction on what you can do with people on their cell phones, and it limits uh, our use of automated technology to dialers. So we can't use automated dialers on cell phones. And there is a, the consequence of that is, is that it's much more expensive. Okay, that, that is one consequence. The larger issue is the higher refusal rate, and that's taking place both on landlines and cell phones. Um, and we deal with that by uh, either by quota sampling or post hoc adjustments. But we've got some pretty nifty tools to deal with. A pure statistician frowns on these tools. Um, it's not good sampling to do the things we do these days. But if we were to follow pure sampling rules, we'd be wrong. So um, all in all, this is working pretty well. And for the most part, with significant exceptions, but for the most part, polling has not been less accurate than it has been in the past. Okay, it's, it's been about as accurate. And in this last election, it was actually pretty accurate. <coughs> as far as turnout is concerned, turnout is, um, is actually fairly predictable within limits. Um, the best predictor of whether somebody will turn out is if they have they turned out before. Um, and we have a lot of data on that now. You went to big data. Well, one of the pieces of big data we have is whether somebody voted. I can, if you give me your last name and your address, I can probably tell you how, whether or not you voted in the last six or eight elections um, and how long you've lived at your current address. I probably know more about you than you really care. Um, and, and turnout is one of those. Um, but you now have a phenomenon of disproportionate turnout and you get these cyclical waves of turnout. So in 02, we had pretty good Republican turnout. In 06, the Republican turnout was terrible. Democratic turnout was really good. In 08, Republican turnout was terrible. Democratic turnout was 08. It was terrible. In 10, we had good Republican turnout because everybody was mad at Obamacare and Democrats stayed home. They were kind of embarrassed. I don't want to deal with this. And Republicans were just angry. Um, and it's, it's actually fairly easy to predict that in the aggregate. Um, and if for, 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 the, for the, the average voter, it's not easy to predict that for the individual voter. But since we're predicting in the aggregate anyway, um, it, that doesn't really matter. And the final point is on, turnout, on predicting turnout is, is this. The, the difference between the person who's very likely to turn out and almost certainly not to turn out is very large. But the difference between the person who has a 0.6 odds of turning out and a 0.5 odds of turning out is minimal. Okay, So it's when these highly unlikely groups all of a sudden show up um, that that is when you get in trouble. Um, and um, very specifically, that has been the case with the Hispanic vote, um, which Republicans systematically underestimated, uh, well, some. Um, and the, um, the uh, African-American vote, which uh, I don't know why they underestimated. I mean, all you have to do is look is what look at 08 to figure out what happened in 012 and 12, which Republicans underestimated in 12. So I, I think there are people making mistakes, but they're making really dumb mistakes. Um, <laughs> it really isn't all that hard, and not everybody um, was wrong. Some people absolutely got it right. Um, I was involved in 15 elections in the last cycle, and I got wrong. And I was wrong in one. And I wasn't wrong about who won. I was simply wrong about the margin by which that person lost. And I underestimated the margin by which they lost. And I did it because I got turnout wrong. So I'm not telling anybody this is easy or, um, or um, 
obvious, but, but it is highly doable. You can get it right most of the time. Great. Yeah, <coughs> I, think, I think Jan gave a pretty good, he gave a pretty good overview, I think, of the problems of polling, of, of being a pollster, uh, when you have to call things really on, on not just every day, which you really do, but, but on the last day. Uh, I think these problems are not new. Uh, uh, they, they've been around a long time. <coughs> when I started polling, uh, we started to do nightly phone polling. And at that time, not everybody had a phone. So the first thing everybody would say is, you can't do phone polling. You have to go door to door. So eventually, quite interestingly, and then everybody said, well, you can't do phone polling because 40% of the people have unlisted numbers. So we had to come up with random digit dialing so that we could find the people who had unlisted phone numbers. And then they would say, how did you get my number? <laughs> We'd explain each time, it's random digit dialing. Uh, we don't have your name. But so, uh, we, so phone polling then became the standard because then everybody said, look, there are enough phones and we had to figure out how to deal with the fact that women were more likely to answer the phone uh, than men. So you'd wind up there, all sorts of distortions. And then if you're the kind of person that likes to eat at McDonald's a lot, you're probably not home. So there are a zillion issues that even, even phone polling had to get right. And now phone polling uh, is changing and <coughs> because uh, the landline was a pretty good place. But every person now is going to have a, has a personal phone. Although one thing I just want to say about the slides is the slides give the impression that we're a young country and the younger generation is driving all the changes. And, and as I try to remind people, the, the truth is we've never been older as a country. And that when John F. Kennedy was elected, the youth vote, the 18 to 29, was twice as big as the over 60 vote was. And now they're about the same. So the truth is, I, I think that one of the things, dangers, I think, in polling is now to overrepresent a younger generation that is actually not as big proportionally to the older generation and to forget about how we're going to poll all these people now who are 60 to 90 uh, who are, are becoming more and more difficult uh, to reach, so, so which is the opposite of the way polling used to run. So we went to phone polling. I think we perfected phone polling. We were happy that it met the standards of statistical randomness. We made a few adjustments at the end if we got too many Democrats or too many Republicans. And then the Internet came along. Well, and then the Internet came along, and cell phones came along, and people started to disconnect their landline. Now the Internet or Facebook might be the more perfect directory today of trying to get a census of everyone to then create a random selection. So then we have the problems of, of how you get them. So most polling today, except for political polling, but most market polling today is done on the internet. People like to respond on the internet. They tend to give more in-depth open-ended. It tends to be less expensive. It doesn't have a personal interviewer involved. So I, I think, and you know, one of the things I did in the Blair election few years ago, really actually in 2005, when the internet was fairly new, I did half of it by phone and half of it by internet, reconciled the two so I could see how the differences were running. Eventually, just as door-to-door -door gave way to phone, eventually phone is going to give way to internet, some kind of polling that way, because it's fundamentally less expensive. Uh, it, it is a greater way to reach more people, and it, <coughs> it is in transition. The problem we have is that phone polling was based on the iron laws of statistics. And a lot of the internet polling, the response rates are so low that they really are based on representative samples. So we think actually, I think as Jan said, 
the pattern so far is polling is getting more accurate than less accurate. We're getting less scientific rather than more because we have to deal with, with new things coming along. But then the science of modeling, I think, is coming on top of polling to try to create, <coughs> to try to create more accuracy. And the modeling, then, is really what's going to deal with the turnout issues. We had turnout issues again. I remember quite vividly when Mayor Ed Koch in New York ran for governor. The New York Post said he was going to win the Democratic primary by 17 points. My partner and I had been doing polling that was really tightly screened to the likely voters that were going to turn out. We had them losing by three. Well, that was a bad position to be in because if he won, our poll was wrong. And if he lost, he lost anyway. So he, he lost that, that race, and the, there was a 20-point gap just based on turnout. Even, even then, uh, and I have a nice letter on my wall somewhere saying, your poll was right after all, because no one really believed our poll uh, at the time that it happened. So the same thing, I think, happened even if you fast forward, wow, almost 40 years, you have the same thing in the presidential race here, where uh, I think a lot of Republican pollsters had a turnout model, it didn't reflect uh, some of the additional turnout that was generated by the Obama campaign. And it was a remarkable notion that Obama lost the, the white vote by 20 points and yet won the election, right? And he won the election because the turnout models would the turnout models that some pollsters were using and maybe even Gallup was using just fundamentally wouldn't have had that as a potential outcome uh, and didn't really compensate for the changing you know, complexion and diversity of the electorate based on the new turnout. Great. Turning to our next question, uh, there's really three phases of politics as we focus on it, on it when we're teaching. The first phase is you have to win the campaign. And that's in many ways the easiest, even though we have spent a lot of time focusing on it, because you have very clear contrast between the two sides and a fixed deadline. And so you know who you need to motivate to do what and what time. Then you get on to the next phase is you have to enact it. You need to get Congress to pass it. We've already talked about how difficult that is. Uh, but there you have clear targets. You know that this group of legislators might be uh, wooed if we can add this to the legislation. And you have a flexible deadline. It's more difficult in many ways from a polling perspective and engaging the public uh, than the election. But the third phase is really the hardest and oftentimes not focused on enough. And once you pass something, you need to implement it. And when you implement it, you have unclear targets, you have rolling deadlines, multiple different things going on, unintended consequences that are springing up. And as you know, there is a sustained opposition. People are still opposing it even though it's already passed. And this is not just Obamacare. You look at, in the Clinton administration, uh, NAFTA, there was clearly opposition even after it was passed. I know it took nearly a decade or more for the Mexican trucks to be able to roll as provided for in NAFTA. If you look at Bush, uh, No Child Left Behind run into a lot of opposition in individual districts when they didn't like the way the results were turning out for them, as well as Medicare Part D. I remember distinctly when that was being rolled out there was a lot of complaints about the complexity of this. So I think you always find that this implementation phase, sustaining public opinion and support for something as it's being implemented, is perhaps the hardest part that a president needs to do. And remember, as a society, we're focusing on advising a president in the White House. 
what what do we uh, do to try to sustain that public opinion through the implementation phase? Well, I think that uh, you know it's interesting to observe that governing is a lot harder than getting elected because <laughs> two thirds of those people who get elected wind up not doing a good job governing, at least according to what people think afterwards. So probably there's only about a one-third chance that somebody gets elected is really going to be successful. So this is not a small problem, particularly when, the peop when uh, people get elected and they haven't had a tremendous amount of experience governing. They've got to learn quickly. And oftentimes, the first two years represents a learning period uh, for a president. The, the, uh, <coughs> the first congressional election into a presidency is usually like that old commercial where they put men in uh, kind of the aftershave to kind of wake you up, right, and, and really send a wake-up call because the people send a message on the first few years. Uh, and then if things go, <laughs> go well after you get that message, the presidency typically, you know, does, does a lot better. Uh, I think that the implementation means that there is a, <coughs> there is a, a there is, like it or not, a 24-7, constant campaign or permanent campaign that's, that's, always be, that's always being run. And most things that get passed at the end of the day usually were approved of on the day that they are passed and usually kind of snowball into more, more approval. Certainly the prescription drug plan uh, from Bush was an interesting example where there's a lot of opposition at the time. The more people got to know the plan, the more people actually got to use it, the more they said, hey, this is great, I'm getting prescription drugs, I'm not paying what I used to pay for them. Uh, and that's more likely uh, what more likely what happens. There are a few exceptions. I think you pointed out a few difficult exceptions: gun, gun safety, trade. There are issues where presidents can exert a tremendous amount of leadership to get things passed. But that, frankly, you know, international trade, for example, is an issue that's counterintuitive. Most people in the country don't think we're going to be better off economically if we have if we have more trade, and so. That issue tends to continually reset itself, you know, as economic as, as economic conditions change. But I think that <coughs> the point that you're making is that look, a president's got to go to work every day. Every day, a president's got to do something that furthers his policies, furthers where he wants to go, furthers where he wants to take uh, the country. And implementation of, of that means this means that the administration has to function well. The president has to continue to really show to people you know, how it's functioning and, and how it's working. Uh, and, and I don't think that's anything that's going to disappear. The, the country is set up to have this kind of debate. We, we're having the debate, obviously, on Obamacare. Uh, <coughs> the, on the day that Obamacare was passed, it wasn't actually supported by a majority. Uh, and so I think the administration thought they'd get a majority over time. And they're hoping to roll up a majority through the implementation process. Obviously, the first part of the implementation process didn't go so well. But the second part may go well, or the third part may go well, because, uh, and I think that's where the administration is looking through the implementation to say, aha, we're really accomplishing the goal of getting everyone covered, costs on increasing. Time will tell. But I think politics is going to look at that issue very closely, you know, in these midterm elections. I, I've, been, I've been struggling with a simple answer to this one, and, and there isn't one. I think maybe the, the best way to proceed is by, by, by anecdote um, on, on how different these things are. 
and I, I, I was not directly involved, but on the periphery of the whole debate over torture and whether or not torture was a good thing. And um, we're, we've come a long way um, on, on that discussion, but the analogies now to the NSA and disclosure and maintaining all that data. And the problem with saying anything about it is because the only thing you could say is, look, it really worked, we got this guy, right? As a result of torture, we got this guy. Well, that's something that you can't say 99% of the time within the first 10 years after it happened because you're giving away all kinds of information that you don't want to give away. So some subjects you simply can't, you simply can't talk about, um, which makes it very difficult to communicate with the public on, some, on, on an important subject. And I think the NSA is a good example of that. Um, the, the, the second thing I would say is, is that the public has a surprisingly short attention span on many issues. And my favorite example is Medicare Part D, which, which you mentioned a second ago. Medicare Part D went through Congress in a highly polarized fashion, not too different from Obamacare. It was ramrodded through the House, um, and there were some questions about exactly how it was ramrodded through. It was, uh, it was a midnight special in... It five, five, 15 in the morning special. Yeah, okay, the early, early morning <laughs> special um, <coughs> that um, left behind a highly polarized public along partisan lines. And the irony was that it, Republicans supported an expansion of uh, entitlement benefits while Democrats opposed it. Now, you know, that is upside down, right? That's, that's, that's the reverse of what you would think. Move forward the clock. There was difficulty with implementation. There was difficulty with the website. It took, it took six weeks rather than six months to fix it. But Well, actually, it's still not fixed, but it took six weeks to fix that one. Um, and then you ended up with three groups of people, uh, people generally under 50 who forgot it passed. We did a survey six months after it passed, and we asked, we asked voters, are seniors having trouble buying drugs? And the answer among voters under 45 was 70% yes, which, you know, they just went back to where they were before. The, the second group was seniors who had signed up and were deliriously happy. Um, I worked on the implementation with, uh, with uh, the PR agency that was hired by HHS to do the rollout, um, and the approval rates were in the 80% range. And then the third group was the 50 to 64-year-olds, which were largely the generation that had to help their parents sign up. And they weren't all that happy and because signing up was a mess. And if you, have, if you had to walk your older mother who was not online through signing up, that was a lot of work, and if you lived in another city, that was really a lot of work. Um, so they weren't all that happy. Um, but the bottom line was that about a year after implementation, everybody forgot about the political mess. Um, and either people didn't know Part D existed or they were deliriously happy with it. Okay, and I think my point about short-term memory goes to the people who forgot that it existed. And now look at Obamacare. Um, it was extremely polarized. And the polarization never went away. When we started looking at Part D, we looked at it by party, and all those partisan differences disappeared. And the difference was, are you a consumer or are you not a consumer? And consumers were happy, non-consumers were completely unaware of it. Now look at uh, Obamacare. It is extremely polarized, has continued to be polarized since 10. We're now in, in year four of 
Republicans hating it and Democrats supporting it. And if you look at it by actual use, it, it doesn't affect use. So you have Republicans who have signed up, they hate it. You have Democrats who have signed up, they liked it. It continues to be this extremely polarized mess um, along partisan lines where the actual impact of the program, it's a little bit too early to say, has not shown its effect on public opinion yet. So I, I think just from those three anecdotes, it's very difficult to, um, to, um, to, to draw any general lessons about how this works and how it should work. Um, I think the rule um, that I wish more politicians would understand is that most people forget pretty quickly and they move on to something else. And what that really says is that you've got a lot more freedom to do difficult things um, with, with very specific exceptions. But you've got a lot more freedom to do difficult things because people are just going to move on. So take the tough vote by the time it's election time. Most of them have, will have moved on to something else. The major exception there are issues where you have a very big organized constituency that cares about this issue. And the two prime examples are Social Security and uh, the, uh, the Association of Retired Folks, the ARP, um, and guns and the National Rifle Association. Um, if you mess with one of those, um, the public will not forget because there are organizations that have astonishing amounts of money in their back pockets around to remind you of, uh, uh, of, of your transgressions. So I think for the most part, and this isn't all that hard because voters just kind of move on. They've got lives. They don't, most of them don't read newspapers every day. They move on to something else. Um, but, but there are places where it's, it's very, very, very difficult um, edging on impossible to, to get something done. <coughs> so on that hopeful note that uh, people will forget and we can actually address the big uh, challenges, let's turn it over to the audience to see what questions we might have out there. We've got a question way in the back here. We've got somebody with the mic uh, right here for you. Please identify yourself. Uh, uh, Mark Bauer. I live in Colleyville, Texas, uh, Tarrant County. Uh, my state senator was Wendy Davis. Uh, every other week uh, I phone mate for her. I don't know if y'all heard she's running for governor. And, uh, yeah, I can make 25, sometimes as many as 30 phone calls before I reach a live person. And uh, I don't know what to tell. I, I had a meeting today with a city council member who is in an election process. And I, I don't know if telephones are any good anymore. Uh, what, what's the best way to reach potential voters we do our Facebook pages and, and social media, but it direct, what's the, what, from your experience, what's the best way to reach voters other than, you know, knocking on doors is the efficiency issue of, of reaching everybody, but do y'all have any advice? I mean, with the technological changes with cell phones, it's just killing us as far as phone, phone banking. Yeah, but but you, well, needed, you needed a computer dialing for you. I mean, <laughs> that, that was the problem. The problem is that, that, that in, in what in what you were doing is in a more if we give you a list to call that's different from when the computer calls it when they get a live person answers and connects you so that's kind of how most you know modern phone banks not so much in politics but in the commercial world uh, would work because otherwise you have people sitting there wasting most of their hour dialing the phone because what you want to do is maximize the number of minutes that you spend talking to people you know so so number one we reach people through TV ads 
TV still continues to be the most effective medium, right? And then second to that, I think you're seeing the growth of, of, of digital ads, and you see, you know, some effectiveness of radio. But don't forget that mass communication still drives most campaigns. And the death of TV and the death of TV commercials really didn't happen. Uh, and it didn't happen yet, that's for sure. Uh, and I think, look, there's a, a lot of new ways to reach people, right? So social media represents a new way. Digital advertisements represent a new way. Email represents a new way. Uh, so the, the, the thing is that there's, rather than a shortage of ways to reach people, there's now an enormous number of ways to reach people. And, but to reach one person, you, you, you might have to try five of them, or you might reach people of this generation you know, more easily through the phone, and this generation more easily through social media, and this generation just you know, stick with TV. Um, so, so I think that any campaign manager, as I'm sure they learn, now has to, now has to manage so many new methods of communications and so many different stacks in order to get through to voters. One of the more interesting things I experienced on one of my campaigns, which was much before social media, is somebody tried to run against me with just big, huge uh, 8 by 24 foot signs out in the district uh, that had his big name on there and uh, would say things like, politicians are like diapers, they need to get changed and all this stuff. <laughs> but that's all he put, and he only had those billboards. I had all the other forms of communication. And everywhere I went, even though his name sounded nothing like Kennedy, we were both perceived as the challenger to the incumbent, and everybody said they loved my signs. <laughs> so a part of what it tells you is you need to hit them not just in one way, but they're expecting to see you on their iPad, on their phone, on their, in the TV, and everywhere else. So I don't know, if Jan, if you have any other additions, or we'll go to the next question. Or? No, I think the main points have been made. The main point is that every time we find a new channel, you can't, can't abandon any of the old channels. So you're spreading yourself over more and more channels, and the practical effect of that is becoming more and more, more, and more expensive. Uh, just to give some numbers that underpinned what Mark said, um, I'm in a campaign where we're spending comparable amounts on broadcast, mail, and digital. And the ad recall on broadcast is in the 70, 80% range. The ad recall on mail is in the 50% range. The ad recall on digital is the 20% range. Um, so you're, you're still um, you're, you're still heavily reliant on television to to reach people much more so than you would think, um, and this is in spite of the fact that television costs have gone just through the roof. Um, but it's because of that fact, <laughs> yeah. because it actually it maintains such power that they're raising they're raising the rates. Yeah, and yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a it's a seller's market. But, but I think the final point is, is that at least in, in my neck of the woods, which is largely politics, there are certain people you're not going to reach. You're just not going to reach them. Um, they're not interested in politics, and they're not tuned in, and they're, you're simply not going to reach them. And you can describe them demographically with some accuracy. The younger people are, the harder they are to reach. And it's not because they don't read the papers or don't watch TV. It's just because they're not interested in what, what I have to say. <laughs> Another question. Uh, who's the next one over here? Yes, I'd like an answer from both pollsters, if you could. Uh, with the mainstream media decidedly biased liberal, how does that impact 
your strategy as a Democrat or a Republican pollster? Who wants to take the first cut at that? <laughs> um, well, it doesn't affect my strategy as a pollster. It affects my strategy as a campaigner. Um, am I going to win a war through press releases? No. I, I have to find a way to reach people directly. It, it really is that simple. Yeah. No, I, I, <coughs> I, I don't know that I, I don't know that I agree with the factual assumption that the mainstream media is liberal. <laughs> 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 um, I think that more media has chosen sides and more media has said, you know, I'm going to, I love conservative audiences and I'm going to really lock in on them and I like liberal audiences. So, so in fairness, I'd say that, 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 that a lot of media has picked one side or the other uh, and really focused on kind of telling people what they want to hear uh, and, and others haven't. They, uh, I, love, <laughs> I still love that Fox News calls themselves fair and balanced as their slogan. It's just, uh, but, but, but I think that so you really look through this and you, and, and you look through this and you say the, the unfortunate thing is that a lot of things that, that political figures say gets easily politicized and, and easily polarized. Uh, and that process also involves very subtle distortions uh, in terms of what people really say, what they really mean. So, so I think it, it becomes harder and harder for voters, right? So it's easy if you're a voter that just like wants to be reinforced of what you believe, you're, you're going to hear that. If you're a voter who wants to make an independent judgment on some new policy issues, it, it's harder and harder to get, to get information that isn't colored, I think, through partisanship one way or the other. Now, the, the flip side to that is there's more sources. A, I think more people are more interested in reading the details of issues than ever before, and and they have the, the ability with the internet to find more sources of information and not to settle for one source. So it's not just the paper you pick up, it's the paper you can find and you can really kind of do your own research. And so I think, I think that uh, the flip side of it is I think one of the reasons that we have more actually independent voters in this country than ever before. The biggest party in America right now is no party, uh, and that gap is actually widening, widening very substantially, as I was looking at some Gallup numbers here, uh, is that people want to make up their own minds uh, and, <coughs> and really going to make their own judgments about a lot of these things and are aware um, that, that they may not be getting a fully unfiltered story. And any candidate running a campaign will be wanting to reach their 50% plus one that they're targeting and knowing which outlet is going to be addressing the voters they're trying to achieve. One of the interesting things in my races is that Republicans are more likely to listen to radio than to the three mainstream channels. So as a Republican, I would overweight radio and probably underweight mainstream TV channels uh, relative to my opponent. Our next question. Who uh, why don't we take right here? So my name is Scott Hackler. I live in Fort Worth. Uh, the question I have is about negative campaign ads. It seems like every election that comes along on radio and TV, there's all this negative stuff, and it's stressful to listen to, and it's, it's, it gets sometimes it's really, really bad, sometimes it's a little bit bad, but um, why do you think that, that so many candidates go negative? 
because it's never that one guy goes negative and then the other one's just positive. It's, it's like the bud slinging starts, and they both look bad in the end. So why do you think that this, and do you see it changing over time? Who wants to trade that first? Um, let, let me answer a question. It was a question, why do you think more people read News of the World than the New York Times? It, the, the longer answer is that it is, for most people, easier to decide you have a choice to make, it's easier to decide by disqualifying somebody than by embracing somebody. And, and, and that's simply the way we operate. And we, we use that. Um, um, and that's why you see so much negative campaigning. Now, um, I also think that this is changing over time. There are more and more people like you who say, the second I see that, um, I, I change the channel. There are more and more people, there's more and more evidence in our data that you pay a price for attacking the other person um, where there didn't used to be 20 years ago. Um, and a third piece I would say is that a, a lot of negative campaigning is very badly done. Um, it is cheesy, cheap, you see ads in black and white with yellow lettering, the guy's a dog. <laughs> and, we're now at a point where we're sitting in our living room and we see within the first three seconds that A, this is a political ad, and B, it's a negative ad, and the, the, the channel changer comes out. Um, so I think um, that a, a, a lot of it is bad because it's just so badly executed and that it's actually not all that hard to do a negative ad. Um, and the final point I would say is this. Uh, a lot of negative ad information is perfectly valid. It, I mean, it is simply a legitimate point to make. If, if, if you don't like Obamacare and my opponent does, what's wrong with my pointing that out? Particularly if I then go on and say, and here's what I would do instead, which obviously most people are not doing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but, but I, I think it's perfectly legitimate to say that. And if it's a legitimate point to be made, um, then what's wrong with my pointing it out? I, I don't think we should just say all negative campaigning is bad um, because some of his relatives, David Duke was a Klansman, right? And he ran for governor of Louisiana. He actually made it into the runoff. What's wrong with my pointing out that David Duke is a Klansman? So, so, so I, I'm, I'm feeling your pain, <laughs> but, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, and you know, don't, don't forget that I mean, uh, this society is a rough and tumble society. And if I look at kind of different societies I've worked in, or I look at something like uh, a place like Japan, where, where, where if you ask people a question, they're, they're most likely to say don't know. And, very reticent to give you an opinion. Americans have an opinion on everything, right? <laughs> they are undecided on any question. I can ask the details of nuclear weapons and you know, germ warfare, and like 90% will have an opinion. And then Americans also have an opinion until the day they don't, which is to say that they're absolutely positively definite until the day they change their mind. And so they change their mind, I think, by getting an accumulation of information. Uh, and, and also, if you look even at a lot of our shows, 
right? You look at our shows, reflect this kind of, you know, obviously cable TV is set up, pitted one side against the other. Uh, obviously, reality shows, they throw people off the islands. Um, you know, the line, you're fired, is like one of the most famous lines on, on TV. So <clears throat> even the little birds that everyone likes to play, I always point out they're angry birds. Uh, they're not just like happy birds. So, so we, as a society, we expect people to take the rough and tumble. And, and I do think that negative ads, I was looking at this because it used to be negative ads are almost 90% of the, of the presidential campaign in, in the last campaign. So, <clears throat> so they have, obviously there has been a race to the negative um, on the one hand. And, but it's not unusual for challengers to run a negative campaign. Challengers to unseat incumbents typically have to shake up the incumbent and really show that the, and really, quote, go after the incumbent. So, so that's, not, that's not unusual either. Uh, we used to, in the, in the Clinton campaign, we used to have a thing where we would, we would not want our ads to seem negative, but we would talk, we would have at the beginning, we would actually start the ad with another negative ad from the Republicans. So it would remind you that the Republicans were running negative ads. Then we would tell you it's time, it's time we stood up for Social Security and Medicare. Then it, it, we'd have a little sandwich in the middle. And by the way, we'd show a little clip from Newt Gingrich where he says, I think we should wither on the vine first. And then we end, but we're going to really help, we're really going to really help balance the budget and, and you know, see uh, Medicare through. So, so most people thought, when we polled them by two to one, most people thought we ran positive ads. And the Republicans have a reputation for negative. So even though Bob Dole ran mostly positive ads, I would ask people, and by two to one, they'd say, oh, no, Bob Dole's running negative ads. So, <laughs> so there's not only the actual running of ads, there's the, what I call the campaign about the campaign. Who's running more negative ads? Since they always say, well, you know, he, this, so there's a whole campaign now about who's more negative, who's taking more money from unacceptable fat cats, who's running things by the polls, and, and that, in some ways, obscures the real campaign, which is, are they doing a good job? And do they have anything to say about what they would do if they, if they got the job? So, um, so I think, I think the, you've seen that the trend turns negative. You're right. Some of it is very effective and useful. Uh, I think that public taste dictates the, a lot of the results. And I think if the public taste changes, I think the ads will, will change. And don't forget the politicians give a lot of positive speeches have a lot of positive proposals, uh, and they oftentimes get very little coverage. I would just reinforce the one uh, comment that Jan said about a lot of them are actually giving accurate information. As a, a candidate, the best thing that can happen to you is if your opponent lies about you in an ad. And uh, my, uh, one of my opponents came out three weeks earlier than I could ever come up on TV because she was a multimillionaire running against me and ran three weeks worth of lies, but then after that, I brought up an ad that had actual footage from ABC, NBC, and CBS saying unfair, misleading, and false. And even though she outspent me two to one on TV, I won by 22 points in a district of Bush one by five. So one of the checks on, on negative ads, if they're not accurate, is it only helps the other side. So that's a, a smart campaigner is gonna keep that uh, to a large degree in balance. Other questions? I guess we had maybe time for just one more, one more question. So this is our, I'm sorry, our last question. We'll hang around afterwards for who's, uh, 
We'll give it to the front row. We want to reward the front row. There's at least a couple people here in the front row uh, asking questions. Here we go over here. How valid are political polls? I mean, polls are just, uh, it seems to me, questions that are designed by people who can direct to get answers that they really want. Just as we know Fox is very conservative and MSNBC appeals to liberals, don't pollsters fall into the same trap in trying to please the people who hire them to influence what is uh, they're trying to get the voters to uh, obey or to do? Um, well, actually, and I've changed a little bit exactly what I'm doing, but I would say that, that when you're doing polling for candidates, that the last thing you want to do is to have polls. I mean, your, the pollster nightmare, I think, is when you've told somebody they're going to win, they go to sleep and they wake up and they've lost. So you really want, you always want to be you know, conservative about, about poll questions, how you phrase them, and also be clear, you know, it's, it's kind of complicated in the difference between public polls and, and internal polls. In a public poll, you know, you really have to look at every word and you have to be a consumer of public polls, right? And then a lot of issues are quite complex, so like that, that you know, the tax issue is, do people, you know, favor or oppose, you know, a tax increase? Well, then somebody else asks the question: Would you favor a tax increase if I used it for, right, uh, used it for, you know, building new roads or to help senior citizens or for prescription drugs, right? Is that second question? And then they get a yes to the second one. Is that second question really accurate? Does it really reflect how opinion will be? Will they really see that this tax increase is going to go to the roads or not? Those are really tricky questions on a, on, a, on a lot of the issues. So internally, we actually ran a lot of questions that would seem biased because they would express the candidate's own, own views. But then what we would do is we would then take the opposition's views and we'd knock them down the best we could. So there's a concept of, and then we'd come back with our response, and then we'd come back with, the, with their sir rebuttal, and then we'd see where the public stood. Because I think a good concept is if you float any idea today, opinion, even if Americans have one, is uninformed at the start. And then they, they get, you support it, and then it's opposed, and then you come back as, as he did and you rebut it, and then you come back and rebut, and then you have informed opinion, right? And that's why a lot of healthcare issues start out, do you want healthcare for everyone? Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah, do you want, how do you want to pay for it? And then you go through all the issues, and then it becomes a much more divisive and confusing. The reality of opinion is informed opinion. And one of the jobs that a good pollster has to do is explain how this debate is going to come out in the rough and tumble of politics that, that you've picked up on, and to project that through these questions. Great. Any last response, John? Um, my answer is the same. Um, I'm... I'm I'm not doing anybody a favor if I give them the wrong results. Um, I do three things. I, I, I tell you where you are, and I tell you how you got there, and then I tell you how to fix it and go ahead and win. Those are the three things that I do as a pollster. If any of those three pieces is based on inaccurate information, um, I end up being wrong. I don't want to be wrong. Um, I, I had a friend who was in, in Vietnam, and 
he had a cleaning lady that came by every Wednesday, and he noticed that every Wednesday night something was gone. A dollar, um, pack of cigarettes, but nothing big was ever gone. So she never stole enough to get fired. Um, and she wanted to be there for the long run. And that's me. I want to be here for the long <laughs> run. <laughs> I want to be here for the long run. Um, and if I provide incorrect information, then um, I'm not going to be here for the long run. And, and Mark draws an important distinction between what we do internally and privately and this made-for-release polling. And in the made-for-release polling, which is what you're most likely to see, you have reason to be very, very, very nervous because there really is a lot of junk out there. Um, so, so I think your question is entirely fair. Um, but again, I want to be around for another while, and if I start pushing out junk, um, you're going to figure it out, the press is going to figure it out, and we're simply not going to be covered. So um, I think you have reason to be nervous in a lot of the stuff that is the made-for-release stuff. Um, but there are people who care enough about their reputation to do it right. Um, and your problem is to figure out who it is. Well, gentlemen, on the basis of what we've heard tonight, I think all of you will be here for a long time. So we're, we're very grateful for you sharing with us your insights. And it certainly helps all of us understand what we observe, what we read, and, of course, when we pick up that phone and some of the questions for us. So, Mark, thank you for making this possible. Yeah. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.